How are you, Shadi? How'd the how'd the Sullivan thing turn out? I I saw I thought it went really well. I was really happy with it. Yeah, like uh, why? What'd you see? I only saw they haven't released it yet, so that you just released that that like thing about him. No, it's been it's talking. been released. Oh, I haven't listened to it yet. Um, yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah. I just saw it on Substack just a few minutes ago. But um, what's the sort of like top line stuff? Like what what was the 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 best and. I guess it was mostly a love fest between me and Andrew. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Look, I was feeling quite contrite. Like, I was not in a mood to get... I, I just... I feel like I just don't have it in me. I don't have the courage of my convictions to really make strong cases about what's going on now. I mean, I held my ground in the things that I, I really think are important that are my consistent through lines, but I... um. I conceded to him. I don't know, maybe that's not the right word, but I was like, "Hey, you were right on a few things, and I got some things wrong." And um, and I just kind of opened up about how I was torn about certain things and how I miscalculated on Trump's sheer badness. And because my brother warned me, he's like, "Shaddy, before you go on, be careful. This is not the time." To dig deeper. This is not the time to double down. Uh, I don't know about that. I just don't know about that. <laughs> Wait, what, what do you mean? I don't know. It just that seems that all seems kind of wrong to me. Um, I don't. Think I even it's... told Andrew. I'm like, listen. I, I feel like people are telling me that I should read the room, and maybe they have a point. And then Andrew was like, no, no, Shaddy, ne- never do that. Yeah, never do. So that. he was even. So he was, but but I was just being open about how I felt. It's been tough. No, I, I feel I, like when yeah, go on. When I get attacked a lot, it does. I I don't I don't I I want people to like me in the end. Yeah, <laughs> or at least some people to like me. No, but I mean I, I don't know. I got ratio over the last few days too, Shadi. Um, oh yeah, are we live? By the way. Yeah, we're live. I mean, I don't know where we'll cut in, but we're live. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> um, I, I made a comment that I think that, you know, what's happening in the US should be a sort of sobering occasion for Brits to realize that no Remainers didn't uh, try and steal the uh, de- steal democracy and sort of overturn democracy by trying to be against Brexit. Like, no, Boris Johnson isn't Donald Trump. And, you know, Brexit isn't the great national humiliation. And uh, I was ratioed by people saying, what about uh, Joe Cox, the British MP that was uh, shot in 2016, which is ah. it's a really, 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 really difficult thing to answer because of course that was one of the most shameful and horrible moments in Brexit. That's not tied to Brexit history. specifically. It was, wasn't it? Well it's one it of the reasons I was Brexit? very proud it was one of the reasons I was very proud to vote remain what it was because it was in the middle of the campaign. But it's very difficult to have an argument online in which you say that was a terrible thing, but this other terrible thing is of several several orders of magnitude worse. You know, anything you tweet, you can end up coming across as like either dismissive or callous about an MP being murdered, or creating a sort of moral flattening between everything that's happening in the UK and everything that's happening in the US, which I think is just analytically a really big mistake. Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I, I'm already, I'm already here too, basically, is what I'm saying. Well, you know, the, the, I mean, the moral flattening thing, I think, is, is the, to me, is one of the most interesting and maybe difficult parts of this. And I mean, you know, so I, I, 
I don't know if Ben, if you were here, you, you might have stepped away, but Shadi was on Andrew Sullivan. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, yesterday. And, you know, we did a podcast with Andrew a little bit before that. And, you know, the, the sort of proximate cause of that was Andrew sort of tweeting uh, sourly at something I'd written, which was basically saying that, you know, no one should be particularly smug about this one way or the other. And um, I still really stand by that. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, again, it's, it's completely understandable after this, this uh, kind of, uh, you know, just outrage that uh, people are feeling particularly high on their horses and like, you know, we have a clear line here. And in no way, you know, am I tempted to to like make equivocations here. But you know what it is? It's just like I'm watching this and the aftermath of this right now, I'm not I think we're getting going in much worse places and not and I'm not even saying because there's going to be an overreaction and this will then justify not not that, but it does feel like the wheels are coming off. I don't know. Is that is are you guys getting that feeling? It feels to me like 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 we are uh, we're just heading down a really bad path in the states so, right now. D- Demir, this is this is where I disagree quite a bit. So it's interesting that you say what you just said because I think one thing that Andrew and I we didn't completely agree on this, but. We definitely ended on a hopeful note. And I guess we can include the the link to that in the show notes if people want to see where we ended up. But um, I'm certainly more um, optimistic, maybe that's not the right word, hopeful, let's say, today than I was on the day of the storming of the Capitol. I mean, that that felt very dark to me, and there was a sense of dread and foreboding. And obviously, no one knew what would happen next. I think we've been able to step down from the ledge or whatever. Uh, and, you know, the work, I mean, America, the inauguration will happen. Trump has basically done, he's done the closest he can possibly do to conceding without actually conceding, which is a relief for me. So the fact that he said that he won't be attending the inauguration is obviously unfortunate and, um, you know, a violation of norms and, you know, he should attend it. But even the fact that he was saying, I won't be there was a relief for me because I'm like, he's actually acknowledging that the inauguration will happen on January 20th. And it's a very low bar, but um, it's a bar that I'm happy we're able to clear. I, you know, so, so I guess it's my occasion to jump in and say why I'm not feeling particularly optimistic about. I, well, you know, before you do, Ben, I mean, I just want to say, I mean, this is it's it's why uh, you know I I texted you yesterday to come on because you and I were having a, a conversation that I thought was actually we were sharing a fair bit of pessimism. So I, I thought that you know uh, maybe we needed to clip Sunshine Shoddy's wings a little bit here. So I had you on. So go, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Ben. <laughs> Well, should we introduce Ben first, or sh- I mean, should we say who this third person is? Ben Judah of the Atlanta Council, written many books. Uh, yeah, just a. Just- we should probably say which ones in case uh, people want to go to their local bookstore. Actually, no oh. one does that anymore. Or, or like, go to the Amazon uh, and mega order. corporation. Yes, mega. <laughs> he is the author of Fragile Empire, which is about Putin and Russia. Um, and he is also the author of This Is London. I love that title. I don't know what it's about because I haven't read it, but it sounds great. Thank you. 
So go on, Ben. Tell, well, tell, us, your, tell us your darkness. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> we should also mm. use this opportunity, as we often have to do when we start the podcast, to encourage our dear listeners, because we've been away from them for a while. It's true. They haven't actually heard from us. So we need to acknowledge their presence, first of all. I should also say that my mom, I was talking to the, her the, the other day, and she's like, Shadi, you and Demir haven't done a podcast in a while. Tell Demir that I say hello and that... Um, that she misses the podcast oh. because my parents, when they're driving around Pennsylvania, they'll often put the podcast on and listen to my voice and I guess your voice too, Demir, <laughs> while they're driving around and that makes them very happy. And I think it was hard for them because they had to go, what, three weeks without that. And um, so that's one thing, one important thing. The other important thing is that you, dear listeners, if you want to uh, we encourage you to subscribe to get uh, our paid content um which is you know essays uh, shorter pieces and also bonus podcast episodes all available on our website and to subscribe all you have to do is go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe um and give us some of your money and it's not too much just a little bit of it yes stimulus check <laughs> ben go ahead well firstly thank you for for having me and i actually feel very pessimistic about things happening right now and things going forward and i feel very alarmed by a willingness to give off false optimism or a willingness to minimize what's happened which has sprouted all over uh the left and the right over the last uh few days and i thought i would sort of explain why? Um, I don't think that what happened on Capitol Hill is a flash in the pan, first of its kind event, because we've seen this happening before, almost in the States. You know, when there was uh, militia members pushing themselves into the state Capitol building in Michigan, trying to intimidate, a lot of people started flagging, like, this is this is really starting to look bad in this uh, country. And um, I think that there's a, a through line there from what's happening in the States to what's happening right now. And the reason that I think it's kind of pessimistic going forward is I think, you know, it's the shape of things to come. What I'm worried about is that in, you know, what Trump tried to do of, you know, use various techniques. Like the first technique was legal chicanery. The second technique was, uh, you know, inciting uh, mobs. You know, the third technique was attempting to get, uh, get attempting to get the security services or the army or elements of the uh, of the police on his side to uh, overturn the the vote. The fourth element was, um, you know calls for ballot stuffing i think that we could very easily see if this whole process is normalized or minimized somebody pull it off successfully in one of the states over the next few years like what's going to happen if in a couple of years time you know there's a hotly contested election in in michigan and the system doesn't work you know i feel like very downbeat when people have been going over the last few days oh the system works and uh i'm not sure it does i think it's only working right now to 
prevent catastrophic failure. It's not working to shape any positive outcomes for for Americans, uh, let alone for the for the pandemic. So that's why I'm sort of pessimistic. And the other reason I'm sort of pessimistic and dark about it is I think that whilst you know, the intelligentsia was arguing about whether or not this fit the Cold War academic definition of uh, a coup, a really, like, theological exercise, I thought. Um, a real theological exercise, you know. I I think that the news that was coming out of, you know, the main kind of broadsheets was indicating that behind the scenes things have been far worse than what is currently in the know and i think that there are a lot of indications that trump pushed a lot further to bring elements of the military on board to collude with some elements of the police possibly to have them in the the know that he'd sort of planned this that he thought it was going to succeed he was going to succeed and you know I've been. I don't think people have quite appreciated the gravity. Well, I I don't know exactly what you're referring to there, because I mean, as as far as I can tell, one thing is one thing that I've seen reported is that um, Trump refused to call, at least initially, and then Pence had to. Pence is the one who gave the order for the National Guard to come in. What, What other examples do you have in mind? Let's just dwell on that for a moment. You know, that is. You know, let's give a. You know, the evidence is sort of all over the place and coming through on Twitter and in lots of uh, newspaper articles. So it's sort of hard to summarize it. But the things that have really jumped out to me are the following. That video circulating of the Trump family and associates playing like that song Gloria from the 1980s, like watching the uh, mob moving in on Congress with Don Jr. and Guilfoyle shouting fight to the, uh, to the video. Then this evidence that seems to be coming through that some pretty shifty stuff had been going on as to why there was no police there, why in the right places, why there were not enough police. And then this third element, which is a break in the chain of command. So if Pence gave the order, it means that Trump was not uh, commander in chief, like a shocking constitutional development in and of itself. And the fact that the Congress had to be there for a significant period of time, you know, under serious risk. And Trump was unwilling to take that uh, to take that order to remove them shows the intention to create a kind of to have them bed down or some form of encampment or keep them there or, you know, prevent the certification from uh, going ahead. So th- those are some of the reasons that I'm you know, sort of more in the sort of dark pessimist uh, camp uh, about that. And then we've also got sort of statements coming through. Take what, like, Fiona Hill had to say, you know, saying that it's very clear that the president was trying to organise a coup. It didn't succeed. It very easily could have. And indicating that she is a, she knows that things are far worse uh, behind the scenes. There have been various people coming out and saying that the fact that all the former secretaries of uh Defence had to publish that um, that letter indicates that things were far worse behind the scenes than has come out. So I'm, you know, yes, I'm drawing the dots. Yes, I'm. You kind of have to though, in a, when you're living through a historical uh, event. 
And they make me convinced that when the historian back to write about this week, they'll be really surprised actually how relaxed everybody was about how people were willing to to see it through a lot of online culture prisms of is it LARPing or is it, you know, or or just get dragged into these sort of theological debates about whether or not it fits uh, an outdated definition of a of a coup d'etat. But have people actually been relaxed? I mean, that hasn't been my perception. I mean, what I've seen, you know, whether it's um, just talking to people I know, friends, family, whatever, or online, um, it seems that this has been treated as an unprecedented shock, as something we could have never imagined seeing in our own country. I don't really see people dismissing it unless by dismissing it you you mean that um if people are saying well oh these are you know uh this is a guy with a hat or whatever um but there is certainly a play acting element to it if you look at some of the characters that were there and maybe that's what you're referring to but i feel like i mean certainly as someone who um was being attacked for saying this this is not this is not fit in the academic definition of a coup so i guess i'm one of those people who was getting into that theological uh, debate um, and maybe i pissed you off with some of my tweets ben and i apologize for that if i did no but, no no, no um, <laughs> But anyway, Demir, so what were you no, about so to say? No, so look, I, I just want to build on that a little bit. I, you know, Ben, I don't think it's, it's historians. I think we're going to find out a lot really soon. You know, it's just not, it's not, the, the, the thing is, is that uh, once uh, inauguration happens and you have the transfer of power, unless we're in for another really nasty surprise, and I can't imagine we will be because I can't imagine there won't be precautions taken uh, going ahead from here for all sorts of reasons, because there is all this sort of like dark talk here. Um, I think we're going to know a lot more soon. And, you know, the thing that, that really I find most striking is, is in fact that, that they were able to breach that, that to me is the one thing that, that makes me most uneasy about all of this, that, that, uh, you know, it's possible. It's quite possible that this was all just, uh, you know, uh, for whatever set of reasons they were unprepared for it. And, uh, you know, while there was, there's some footage of cops letting people in, there's also footage of cops just, you know, being completely overwhelmed. I don't know if you saw that footage today about the cop getting pinned behind his shield. He's bleeding out of his mouth. He's screaming, you know, as these guys sort of charge. And this isn't the guy that, that, that got killed with a fire extinguisher and collapsed, uh, you know, back at the at the precinct and he walked back and just died in front of his 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 colleagues um it's it's um that that's the one thing i think is 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 true i i think we should definitely hold off because i don't think we know all of it at all there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a way that one can sort of see this sort of bumbling element and even in the the trump sort of thing there's a there's a, a means of seeing this as or there's a there's a narrative that you could imagine being true, which sort of maps onto Trump in general is this sort of mix of like deep incompetence and malevolence and amorality that sort of gets to this. And you sort of get a feeling from some of the reporting that was coming out from like Maggie Haberman and the rest of them that, you know, the children are now actually freaked out about what's happened because they're slightly more 
um, you know, sentient than their their demented father. And so they prevailed on him. And he seemed a little rattled in, in one of those sort of statements that that uh, that he gave. Um, but, you know, the thing the thing, Shadi, you know, the, the, you're, you're, you're turning back on like, you know, people's reactions on this. And I mean, I guess we can talk about that a little bit. But that's part of the, the, the thing that I guess sort of irritates me about this, too, because tied into it is this this doesn't happen in America sort of uh, bit of shock, which to me blinds us again to the question of how bad off are we right now? Uh, because this doesn't happen in America. Um, I guess I'm trying to sort of articulate why I'm, I'm even more maybe pessimistic than, than Ben. And maybe Ben, you're, 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 there's more pessimism to come out of you, but it just feels to me that, you know, I was I was saying this to Ben when we were talking yesterday. The 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 emotional feeling I got as the as Congress was being overrun was oh my god no one's in charge like the wheels are really coming off and you know this 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 filthy baying mob just charging in there um, and and you know I I I think to like maybe embellish a little bit on, on Ben's thing about saying that, you know, we're, we may see this happen again in other contexts uh, in the States. Um, the real challenge is going to be, uh, I think that this level of political violence now becomes a part of our every day, uh, one way or the other. And again, you know, this is, this is not to say that that uh, to equivocate one way or the other or to use any of these ugly talking points that Republicans are using now, like, well, you know, uh, Antifa and and uh, and the riots. But it has been a year of political violence and a, a year of just sort of the wheels coming off slowly more and more and more. Um, and and, you know, the 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 thing that makes me nervous and this is why I've been arguing against like Trump is a fascist and the rest of this. Trump is and we we talked about this with Andrew. He's an accelerant in a lot of ways. But but what what I think my and I I I, I think that the fascist moment is approaching because I feel like the wheels are coming off, and I'm for the first time I feel the political need, or I understand the political need for um, this desire for someone to just come and fix it, and that's the fascist moment when you start looking for that kind of person, that kind of solution to what is happening right now. And I, you know, I, I, I saw uh, Joe Biden's press conference just now. I mean, I think he is, he is doing a terrific job uh, and sort of setting the tone and trying to get things back on normal. But I'm really concerned that it's not going to be enough. I, so I have to say, I really see it differently, especially the last thing that you said right there. I think that, um, well, first of all, I think that Americans, when they see violence on either side, and we saw this um, o- over the summer with um, a minority, a small minority, but still it was there of more uh, more violent um, and not peaceful uh, rioting um, and property damage and, and that sort of thing, that that actually undermined support, um, including among... Um, people of color um, and minority communities, there was a sense that, hey, this is not what we want in our own communities. And I think a lot of uh, the polling uh, on reactions to some of that um, was clear as well, that the vast majority of Americans did not feel that violence could be justified in those um, circumstances, however just the overall cause was. 
Now, I think that when we're talking about the storming of the Capitol, I can imagine uh, it it playing out in a different way that could have that could have led to um, something like what you're saying, where you would have just had you know absolute chaos. I mean, let's say let's say imagine imagine that the police had actually done what some people are saying they should have done to to have used um, brute force to have um, done whatever they could have done to make sure the Capitol wasn't breached. I I sympathize with that, and I wish that was possible. But what I worry about is that in practice, that would have meant um, killing many more than, um, you know, the three or four protesters. We don't know exactly what circumstances these, um, in you know, what insurrectionist protesters or how they were killed. We know at least one was killed um, in the Capitol. Let's say 20 were killed or 30 when uh, if they were just shooting into the crowd and used um, extreme force, um, as some people seem to be suggesting they they should have. When people say, oh, well, um, uh, can you imagine if these were, you know, Muslims or Arabs or black people marching onto the capital? Um, they would have used live ammunition or whatever, as if they're almost longing and saying that in the name of equity, they should use live ammunition, not only for black people and, and Muslims, but also for white folks, which I think is an absurd argument. It's actually the argument should be the exact reverse, that if Muslims were marching on to um, uh, the Capitol, I would hope that um, live ammunition wouldn't, you know, wasn't used. So imagine that happened, and then you had Republicans actually rallying behind the protesters who were shot and saying, these people are martyrs. They were exercising their peaceful right of protest, and look what the police did to these you know, poor people who were just venting out their grievances or whatever it might be. And then you would have actually had something completely different than what you end up having, which is, which is Republicans actually rallying against the insurrectionists, at least on the Senate side, the vast majority, the, the vast majority of Republicans um, condemned to various degrees what happened and and, you know, uh, much fewer objected to the certification than than was expected in various states. So that actually shows that when it actually got to the edge, when things really got scary and when the threat of violence wasn't just some imaginary thing, but people actually saw it happening, even Republican senators were saying, this is too far for us. So to see someone like Mitch McConnell, someone as as, as cynical and um, just bad in, in recent weeks, call it an insurrection or someone like Lindsey Graham saying enough is enough, despite him being a sycophant towards Trump up until now. That actually showed that actually tells us, I think, a very different story than than the one I think you guys are are telling, which is that um, something was crossed. And finally, it took four years as Republicans were indulging Trump endlessly. But finally, they said, we have a limit. Well, I can see that argument. And I would very much like that to be the case Um, since I'm being the bear on this show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep, keep pushing that, that case. So the case for pessimism really is as follows. The case for pessimism is who dominates the Republican Party today? Who 
sets the tone, who sends the signals, who tells these people what to think. And as far as I can see, it's simply not the lawmakers. It's not a party where the lawmakers are in control. Like the Republican Party in the rest of the country is in reality dominated by these media figures like Hannity or Tucker Carlson or numerous others. And if you go and spend a bit of time watching how conservative or nationalist media has been uh, reporting on these events, and I can hardly say it's reporting, has been uh, commenting on events over the last few days, one sees this attempt at minimization. You know, Tucker Carlson's been going, oh, well, it was inevitable, given that the people were being uh, repressed so hard that something like this would uh, happen. You know, this was what they should expect. And I think that sends a signal to the movement, to the party, to the ambitious, to the rest of the country, that this kind of thing is maybe on the dirtier end, on the hardball end of politics, but it's something that can happen, can, maybe not in this format, but it can happen again, maybe in a governor's office, maybe in a local election. And one of the telling signs to me that the spores of that are present is who was in that crowd. There were state representatives, there were state senators in that crowd, you know, there outside Congress. And so what I think all this points to is over the next few years, and we know for you know from experience that the movements that make up the Republican Party tend to radicalize whilst Democrats are in office, you know, the it points to a much more conflictual uh, few years ahead than people are expecting. So just one final point I want to make about why I'm worried. And this is why I'm not just worried about somebody who lives in America, who could, you know, how many years is it now, could become American one day. But as a European, you know, one of my concerns is that a variety of forces within the country and internationally are pushing towards some kind of confrontation, slow down, uh, showdown or challenge with China. And I am worried that the United States ends up in a new Cold War with China and is unable to sustain it, that the China politics gets bound up with the domestic politics, China policy becomes the new Iran policy being toggled on and off between Democrats and Republicans, viewed as fundamentally illegitimate, and that this country just simply doesn't have that deep consensus that it did in the mid and late 20th century to pursue you know such a such a challenging such a stressful national project as a competition for for global dominance i'm very very worried about that and that's before we've even got on on to any of the issues about can the us produce things can the us uh push through the kind of uh, state capacity projects that, that it needs. That's leaving that aside and just assuming that it is possible. So where does that leave a country like Britain, uh, a bloc like the European Union, and a lot of European embassies, a lot of European governments saw what happened in Capitol Hill and thought, well, what does this mean for us? And like, what was in their mind is what does it mean for the Europeans 
looking into a future of great power competition between the US and China. And it sort of indicates you need to hedge and you need to take a bit of distance. But that's why I think the punitive measures that we're seeing in response to the storming of the Capitol are important because it does underscore the seriousness with which people are, are, are taking this. So the fact that someone who was previously celebrated, Josh Hawley, I'm sure people still like him on the Republican side and he has his base. But the fact that in polite company, Josh Hawley is no longer seen as a rising star. He's no longer seen as the um, the future economic populist who can maybe bring some disaffected Democrats on board. The fact that his book contract with Simon and Schuster appears to have been canceled, and Holly and Holly now is, um, I think that he's tainted. Um, that it's going to be very difficult for him to recover from from this. And there, and I feel like there is there, there's a sense that. Um, even even the bad Republicans, they don't want to be tainted too much. They know that this has gone too far. And now you're seeing them, you see the fear, even with Trump, he, it's finally dawning upon him what this could mean. The fact that Facebook and other companies are willing, and it's not something that I would I would have supported previously. I am not, maybe not quite a free speech absolutist, but um, perhaps closer in that direction. I don't have a problem now with these companies um, blocking Trump from their platforms. And this is power and there's real consequences to it. And I think that it is dawning on Republicans that there is a price to be paid here. Um, again, we don't know how, how long this will last, but right. that's which, certainly where the mood is right now. What time frame? Well, I think it's much too early to say that Josh Hawley's uh, a busted flush. And look at the opinion polls. Yes, Yes, no, that's it. Look, that's it. Look, that, that, that's the thing. We, we don't know the opinion polls yet, but, but you know, I mean, that's the part that, that I'm, I guess, hanging a lot of my pessimism on is I, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't buy it, Shadi, that, that, um, uh, quite frankly, you know, uh, you, you said, for example, uh, the which people turned on uh, on on the riots uh, this summer. Um, I think there's 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 a lot of evidence that the people actually affected by the riots, the small business owners, uh, you know, uh, communities of color that actually had their their neighborhoods torched. Yeah, they were upset about it. But you know, overall, and this is there's that essay by Michael Lind. I mean, you know, on the sort of national political level, not lo- not a lot of that was was dif- disavowed. And since this is a national story, this is not basically, you know, a, a local story. And while this, the, the damage is massive, it's symbolic damage. It's not sort of economic damage. Um, I, I, I think we are going to be surprised as we have been over the course of the last four years, increasingly how, um, something you see with your own lying eyes, uh, is interpreted completely differently by, uh, approximately half the country and that the opinion polls are going to bear that out. Um, I so think, do you have an opinion poll? I mean, we, we have that YouGov one that came out, but that was just like right yeah, in the heart one, of it, right? True. You know, one in five voters, including 45% of Republicans, approve of the storming of the Capitol building. And if you spend a bit of time watching the, the shows on Fox or ONN, you can see why. Because there's a strategy of minimization and a strategy of equivalence being deployed by those hosts and uh, those 
media decision makers that to equate what happened with Black Lives Matter protests in the summer and to make this seem like an inevitable consequence of pressure being put on the uh, on, on Republican voters. You know, so that's why I'm kind of, you know, worried about elements of the left that are also seeking to sort of down downplay it for their own uh, sort of worldviews. Yeah, look, here's the... Yeah. I mean, I, well, we don't know. I mean, we're, we're speculating on a lot of this. I just, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm just not sure that I think just like a lot of the optimism is hanging on this idea that this was, that this was the cathartic shock that just like brings us back to the status quo ante. And, and I guess, I guess, you know, Shadi, here's the way I'd put it to you in, in language that I think will resonate from our conversations over the last, um, over the last, uh, how long are we doing this? 18 months longer, 19, 20 months. Um, I think you can, you can be optimistic that this cathartic shock will snap us out of this if on some level you do believe that Trump is an aberration. But if you, if you see this as a kind of culmination of a bunch of processes that have been going on for a really long time, I don't think there's really any cause to think that we're going to snap back into something like normal politics with a sensible center that is sustainable over time. It feels like to me, like the, the body politic has just taken a really serious body blow and it's suffering from severe internal hemorrhaging and we just don't know it yet. That's my feeling right now. Well, well, Demir, let me clarify. I'm not optimistic maybe in the sense that, that the word is, is often used in that I'm not, I'm, I think that America is likely to stumble along and muddle through. I'm not imagining some new era of consensus or sensibility. I think we're going to be a conflictual society where you have um, very high levels of polarization for the foreseeable future. I see no way around that. But as you as you might know, I'm not someone who believes that consensus is the end goal of politics. I don't need there to be consensus. I don't need there to be a sensible center. I'm fine with, I'm not fine with it. I would prefer otherwise, but I think America can survive with essentially what we've had with the level of polarization that we've had for the last several years. Um, And so when we talk about the status quo ante, I'm just talking about before the Capitol was stormed. I don't need us to, I don't need this to break the fever and we all erupt into um, Republicans and Democrats holding hands. Um, and, you know, I think at some point after, I think it's, it would be great to have a period of normalcy for like a few months or a year and we just get our bearings. I don't think we have to have Biden-type centrism indefinitely. And at some point, I'm going to return to my previous position of thinking that we need an economic populist like Bernie Sanders to actually address structural economic issues which are driving anger and grievance throughout the country, not just on the Republican side, but also increasingly on the left side of the spectrum. So so maybe that's why maybe optimism is not the right word to use. But I do believe in American democracy, and this is where I will double down 
I believe our institutions are resilient, and I believe that what we're seeing right now shows that the Senate, um, after we had to wait a while, um, that the bureaucracy, that even the Republican Party, um, that Trump finds himself isolated and that our institutions did rally behind democratic minimalism, um, that when it comes to respecting democratic outcomes, most Americans still believe that there is something to be said for the democratic process and respecting what those outcomes are. So I guess I wouldn't dis- obviously dispute that that's that the democratic minimalism looks like, and you know, almost certainly has carried will carry the day by the time of the inauguration. My view is that. This is just the beginning of the next 10 years of conflictual politics. And given that so many people were so willing to indulge it so far in a context where Biden had flat out won, what would they do and what would they will they try and get away with when it genuinely is a hanging chad situation, when it genuinely is a, a toss-up situation? I'm not sure, I'm not 100% convinced that in four years there's a kind of Florida-style situation. Kamala Harris doesn't look like she's going to get it. She doesn't look like she has you know, well, I don't mean that it doesn't look like she's going to get it. What I meant is it look, in that situation, I'm not convinced that the Republican Party, in the way that I assume it will look in a few more years after more radicalization in uh, opposition will stick to that democratic minimalization. I was like genuinely shaken that so many um, House Republicans were willing to back that te- Texas uh, law case, trying to you know question the vote. Because it just had me thinking about what happens in four years' time when we don't, if we don't have a, a clear cut uh, victory. So, yes, I'd agree with you that the system didn't. I wouldn't say the system worked. I'd say the system didn't catastrophically fail uh, this time round. But, you know, the years ahead, the, the years ahead, I, I just I just don't view this as some kind of end piece to the Trump era. I view us as in the, some, one of the early years of conflictual American politics. Well, Ben, let me ask you, I mean, um, one thing about the, uh, the Ross Douthat um, dream politic thesis, which... I'm sympathetic to, which is that, and I, uh, Bruno Machai is, if I, I should probably learn how to pronounce his last name before we have him on in a week or two, um, that um, this idea that America is unique in its desire and need for fantasy, and that what we had is a lot of fantasy politics or dream politic, where basically Um, you had a kind of online play acting. And I think the vast majority of people who thought the election was rigged and stolen from Donald Trump, they did not come out into the streets. But we have a big country. And even if 70% of the 73 million who voted for Trump think that it was stolen from Trump, all you need is a few, is a, a very small minority to come to the Capitol 
and create chaos. So that's actually one of the more troubling implications of this, that even if the vast majority, they're like, hey, we'll go on with our lives. We think that maybe it was stolen from Trump. The election was rigged, fraud, whatever. But, you know, politics isn't the number one thing in our lives. And we're going to, you know, you know, enjoy our families and uh, watch football on Sunday. I, I don't want to sort of stereotype. I don't know what I don't want to stereotype about what like normal Americans do. I assume some of them watch football. I don't want to say anything that's too offensive, but that they go on with our lot with their lives. Um, and it's actually good that you have outlets like Twitter or Parlay, the French app that I think a lot of um, Republicans are, and Trump supporters are moving to now. It's very weird to me that the French would introduce this. Uh, um, but, you know, so you have these apps and all that and and fantasy uh, when you play people in multiplayer games with um, consoles, uh, PlayStation. I actually don't know how this world works, but you have this online play acting and that actually allows people to, to sort of um, channel their grievance and energy into something which is is problematic but as long as it's channeled into a virtual world, that's better than them marching marching in the streets, right? And that's going to be very interesting to watch is that what does this fantasy mean for most people? Are they, are they content to indulge in the fantasy as fantasy? Or how much does it become a real part of our politics? And, and how, how much is too much, right? So I'd just be, I guess that started off as a question became like a statement, but yeah, no, 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 what do you no, no. think I think about really the dream politic thesis? Actually. I think it's a really poor question. Well, uh, I think that Bruno is, uh, is a really great writer and I, he's one of the few people I, I read everything he writes. Uh, we disagree, I think, on the scale of that or the importance of that. I, do, I think that a blurring of online culture and street politics is is one of the trends of the last few years. You see it all over the world. Like you saw it in France with the Gilets Jaunes. You saw it, it, we're seeing it here now with the Stop the Steal movement. But I think that just because a movement has fantastical outfits or fantastical claims doesn't mean that it can't have a significant number of people in it with very serious intentionality. So my question to you would be, if one, if one went back in time to movements that you know, haven't been analysed through this dream politic uh, paradigm and one looked at, say, you know, Oswald Mosley's black shirts in in London in the 1930s or of the many movements that flourished in Germany in the 1920s or the 1930s, I think they're kind of up close. We would have seen a lot of ridiculous uh, young men sort of having fantasies about themselves. It would have seemed kind of silly. And I think that, I think that sort of taking the silliness too seriously and not taking the what in this case literally was the men with plastic handcuffs and guns in the background and the so-called generals in the crowd egging people on to enter the um, enter Congress seriously enough is is a problem. 
you know, the picture for me that every, is everywhere online is of this sort of like wide-eyed, clownish young guy in like what looks like a bear skin. And that is, of course, an example of the dream politic. But the picture that should have been everywhere is the pictures of the various former military men actually in the chamber itself, visibly armed with handcuffs with a plan to to take uh, take hostages. So that's why I'm kind of uneasy by that frame. I think that it definitely reveals something, which is the blurring of online culture with, you know, stream movements, which is an inevitable part of an online world. But I don't think I'd use the word dream politics because I think all politics is sort of dreamy and fantastical by by nature, even sort of centrist, liberal, or, or what I've noticed being called online NATO sock dem politics, which is probably mine. Oh, I haven't heard um, that. No, I thought, it was, I thought it was quite good, you know, NATO sock dem. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that's, that's my take. All right, you're, you're, here's more on that. Uh, you know, I think it's... it's, it's um... I think one of the things that blinds us to this is this idea that uh, it's because everyone just falls back on the goddamn fucking Nazis and excuse me. And it's it's it's, um, you know, sorry, mom. Yeah, sorry, mom. You know, I mean, the it's 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 that everyone now then looks at is uh, this model that what happened um, is a failed coup by Trump. And so, you know. Just like, uh, you know, if Trump is vanquished, well, then we can prevent Hitler from happening. And I think that's wrong, too, because, you know, uh, actually, uh, what's his name? Um, Noah, no opinion. What's his? Uh, it's Noah Smith, right? Is that his name? Um, yeah, Noah Smith. Yeah, yeah, Noah Smith. He had a he had a, a good blog post about about the the series of failed coups in Japan in the 1930s, um, and which reminded me actually, which was you know one of the most theatrical failed coups that that like I don't know much about Japanese history, but I was really fascinated by the figure of Yukio Mishima at some point, like in the last 20 years of my life. And if you know you guys don't know who that is, I mean it's you know he's just like Japanese nationalist, just gay samurai. Uh, worshipping bodybuilder guy, one of the most famous writers in modern Japan. Really, just incredible short stories and 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 novels. Um, and and he he runs this sort of insane attempt at a coup. I forget the details now, but they storm into some uh, ministry, uh, maybe some army office or something like that, and take hostages. He comes out on the on the balcony and gives some sort of speech to the uh, gathered troops. And uh, he's either dismissed or, or sort of mocked and laughed. And he goes in the room and, and basically commits seppuku and, you know, his his, uh, his uh, aide cuts his head off. And, yeah, it's this, like, crazy theatrical thing. I remember reading about that and being like, my God, you know. Um, and, you know, it's his whole thing was his devotion to the emperor and the, the death of a dying Japan, very conservative uh, sort of view. What, what's interesting about it, obviously it didn't work, and, and Japan is where it is today. It's, it's you know, none of these things really – took on the 1930s stuff did set the 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 sort of the tone of where Japan would end up it's it's to me what's interesting about it is to get back to that earlier point is like i why i think this is a body blow and we don't yet feel it is because we we're all focused on this idea of getting trump out and i think that there is something really rotten going on right now like really deeply rotten and getting trump out is not going to solve it it's um 
I mean, again, I'm, I, I reiterate, I'm very heartened by everything that Biden's done so far. I think he's hitting the exactly the right tone. He's trying to be conciliatory. In today's remarks, he said, we need a healthy Republican Party. He called out Mitch McConnell and, and um, Mitt Romney and praised them and said we need a, a good opposition, a Democratic, you know, well, Republican, but uh, a, a Republican opposition that's committed to democracy. These are all correct. And he, he made the other point, which said that, like, you know, the people who are actively responsible for this are a small minority of a healthy and good, vibrant American opposition party. And, you know, I mean, again, it's it's an opportunity for even everyone who uh, supported Trump to to not be tarred by what happened right now. I'm not sure that's going to work. I'm not sure that uh, the uh, access to reality, and maybe this is where the the dream politic has the the dark side of it. That I think you know this sort of idea that it's all LARPing just gets out of the way. It's we don't have access to the same reality anymore. That's taken from us. It's gone, and that the interaction of that and politics and the fact that there is no authoritative media and that people can see the same thing and have completely at odds narratives, um, that's what really fills me with dread going forward. I think that there's a, there are at least some ideas about how to counteract a lot of this from, you know, you know, proper media legislation, proper media legislation and proper uh, legislation of the platforms to stem the absolute explosion of conspiracy theories and their mainstreaming amongst boomers we haven't talked about yet. And don't forget that most important of policy recommendations, which is, civic education in primary and middle school that's going to change everything yeah yeah troll yeah yeah <laughs> I don't and, know, and i think also i think that also um there's this fellow uh, um <laughs> rawls you might you might have heard about him he he has a very good article called the um, idea of public reason if only more republicans could if we could maybe mass produce this essay and hand it out as a pamphlet in different parts of the country, I think it would be important for them to be exposed to some of Rawls' ideas. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it for sure. But on a more serious note, I do think that we should punish the worst offenders, and that's where actually I'm a little bit torn on the question of impeaching, trying to impeach Trump right now or invoke the 25th uh, Amendment. Normally I would be against a measure like that, um, I don't know anymore. I think that if there was a way to um, prevent Trump from running from running for office in the future, it does violate maybe some some of my commitments. But I do think it's fair to say now that Trump has, in the most explicit way possible, violated um, one of my non-negotiables. And in some ways, I have to stick to my principles and say, here is someone who has proven himself to be um, uh, not a Demo- not, not a small-D Democrat. And, you know, you can't even pretend now. Perhaps there was a pretense that you said, oh, he's doing these, he's doing, um, he's opposing the... There he is. Go on, Shadi. Oh man, I, I just had a nice little monologue going there, and yeah, um, yeah. I, the last thing I said was "fight me, fight me," and then no one was there to fight you. That's sad. <laughs> no, because I I didn't hear any I didn't hear any kind of like rumbling in the background. So I so I I, I finished my like semi monologue, and then there was silence, and I was like, "Wow, they are so impressed by what I just said that they are speechless." <laughs> so I said, "Fight me" to try to prod you guys to say something. Yeah. 
Well, I well, you left off somewhere saying like uh, uh, that Trump violated your um, uh, your non negotiables. Oh, wow. Yeah, you you went that out was for early a while. on. Yeah. <laughs> So build up to the next thing. I mean, I, I was going to make some quip, quip about him not being a, a small D Democrat, but a big D demagogue. But anyway, go on. What were you saying? No, that's precisely what I was saying, that he violated one of my core non-negotiables. Did you guys catch that part? Yeah, I got that. Keep going. Yeah, Is that it? Was yeah, that it? Yeah, and I Fight talked me? about how if we can... Pr- and No, no. And then, so I would have normally not been um, enthusiastic about impeachment. You caught that I'm now more sympathetic to impeachment That's and barring it. him from future yeah, public yeah, office. Yeah, that we got that. And then then you dropped off. And then you said fight me? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I did you catch a part where I basically said that well, I talked about Trump as cause versus symptom? No. Finish that oh. thought. Finish that thought. And then Ben's got to run on us. So like what, what was what was the boil it down? Oh man, wow, wow. That's really this is a sad story. It this is, is a, a Okay, let me try to recapture the magic. That yeah. was one of my m- most brilliant monologues. Sad. Okay, okay, Sad. okay let's see. Let's, let, me, let me get back in the moment. Um, so I think, I think normally my position has been similar to yours, Demir, that I see and we see Trump as a symptom of broader structural problems, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And... I still think that's true, but with one exception, where I think that Trump is an aberration in how far he went on the small d democratic aspects that I when I think about a Josh Hawley, who has some of the same populist instincts and is sort of the torchbearer of Trumpism, supposedly, and all that. Fine. But can I imagine that Josh Hawley would have been um a, co- a more competent version of the Trump as authoritarian, which I think is an argument that a lot of people make that, oh, look, let's just Trump is just step one. What we might end up having in the future is the competent version of this. And I, I don't buy that because I can't imagine Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz doing what Trump did this week with the Capitol, um, they might have, they might, they obviously didn't indulge it and they egged some of it on before they perhaps understood the full import of what was going on. But um, I think that Trump is so unusual in his, in his disregard for small D democracy. I don't even think that he's very principled about it. I think it's a very instinctual thing. He just doesn't give a shit and he'll do whatever he feels like doing in the moment. And I think that's where I don't really buy the coup argument because I think that requires coordination and a vision where I think what ha- what it seems to me what happened with Donald Trump is um, a more more of a petulance and um, a very... Um, malevolence in the moment without a clear understanding of where he wanted to end up in all of this. And that's why I think he finds himself very quite afraid now because it finally, you know, as I mentioned earlier, dawned on him and all that. So which is just to say that some of these Republican senders, they have something Donald Trump doesn't have and didn't have this week, which is um, a high regard for their own self-interest and ambition, that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are creatures of ambition. 
And if Trump actually knew what was in his self-interest and acted in accordance with his own self-interest, he wouldn't have done what he did. Um, because obviously this is um, this is not working in his own self-interest and, he see, and he's paying the price for that. So this is where I think having a more calculated sense of your own ambition actually encourages you to respect democratic outcomes, at least in some basic sense. Um, and I just so basically what I'm saying is I can't imagine that Josh Hawley would do what what Donald Trump did as bad as Josh Hawley may be. Maybe. I don't know, Ben. Why don't you uh, do the, the, the final word since you've got a run on us? Um, what I want to say is I very much hope that you're right. Like, I want you to be right. That would be a much nicer country for me to live in and for us all to live in. Just to kind of conclude with the bear case, which I'm not 100% sure that I'm totally convinced by, but I'm definitely feeling it at the moment. I would make the argument that the trends to look at right now are not the trends in the chamber. The trends in the chamber were always against the emergence of a nationalist popular movement. The trends in the chamber are always against Donald Trump. Like None of those lawmakers wanted Donald Trump. The trends to look at are ones that are going on in conservative media, the trends that are going on in the states, and the emergence of the scale of the Stop the Steal movement, which could very well be the new, tea, the new Tea Party. And the people that I'm worried about are not so much these kind of Washingtonian figures like Josh Hawley, who was sort of so thrilled to be profiled in the uh, Washington Examiner. It's these state representatives and state senators who are literally in the crowd. And I'm really worried about... I don't think that what exactly happened will likely happen again but i'm just worried about just the coarsening of uh, america and uh this blurring of kind of mob and militia politics and uh and politics and worried that in a small state uh say situ or, or in a larger one in, in, indeed at some point in the future where things are margins are much closer we could see uh a uh a election be overturned Let's hope that the margins don't get a lot closer. Let's keep in mind that historic, I mean, what we saw in this election and also in 2016 are much closer than the historical norm. So one might hope that in the future, we can sort of break away from this 50-50 thing and actually have clearer victories. Not too clear, 52-48 would be fine. But I think you're right that there is a danger in having too many elections that are decided by a few states, 10,000 votes in one uh tens of thousands of votes in one direction or the other. And that, I think, would be the real test if this keeps on happening. All right, Ben. Pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, Hami Moore. That was, that was fascinating to to hear both of your views. I mean, it's such a shame that I missed the original monologue out there in the ether. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, it was what I did wasn't as good, but you got a, maybe a little bit of a taste, a taste for it. But you know, thank you so much, uh, Ben, for joining us. It's always great to have you. I don't even know what thank country you. or state you're in right now, but uh, which state I'm is in it? New York. New York. Oh, oh, so you're with uh, Cuomo, uh, the the mayor. <laughs> uh, sorry, <laughs> Shadi doesn't know anything about local politics. That's why he's not concerned about like decay on that level. <laughs> All right, Ben, talk soon. Bye, Ben. <laughs>